The planet Earth rotates on a vertical axis that goes between the North Pole and the South Pole. It makes a full rotation every 24 hours. I'm not breaking any new ground with that. You all know that. But because of that fact that the Earth rotates on its axis, fixed objects in the universe appear to move throughout the circuit of the sky throughout the day and night, the sun by day and the stars by night. Now, if you were standing on the North Pole, the point where that axis penetrates, goes through the planet, and you looked straight up, there would be a star above your head that's called Polaris or the North Star. And because that star is directly above the point of the North Pole, it never moves as the earth spins. Every other object in the sky will give the appearance as though it's moving, but that one star will not because it's at the pivot point. What that means is this, is that wherever you are in the northern hemisphere of the planet, at night you could find that star, Polaris, and you could get your bearings and figure out your cardinal points. You would know which way is due north, and that way you could also then figure out which way is east, west, and south from there. The southern hemisphere has an equivalent. It's called sigma octans. And it's not perfectly set like Polaris is in the north, but it's close enough that you could figure out where you needed to go. What's the point? Why do I open with that? Is this another star study? No, it's not. The reason I open with that is because no matter how confusing the terrain or the trail that you might find yourself on in this earth, there is always a way when things settle down to figure out exactly where you are. You look up, you find your place, you get your bearings, and then you know which direction to go. Now, there's a parallel to that in the Christian life. We are a spiritual people, and we're on a spiritual journey. And our lives can get confusing. We can kind of lose our way, lose our bearings, and get confused with everything that's going on and not really know which way to go. So what do we do when the terrain becomes unclear? Well, God has given us a spiritual Polaris. That when things settle down and we want to know exactly where we are, we can look to the fixed point, the thing that never changes. That is the Word of God. And when we look at the Word of God, no matter how confused or confusing things are, we can look at God's Word and we can get our bearings. We can figure out where we are and where it is that we should then go. Now, for the past two weeks since we had our prophecy briefing, there's been no small stir of conversation. In fact, my email, my text message inbox, my telephone, my appointment book has been filled with people with questions, with expressive, you know, praises of joy, of things that God's doing. It has just been constant talking about all of these things, but a lot of questions. People are confused about the things going on in the world, how they relate to the Bible, and then more specifically to us. So it's easy to get confused. It's easy to get lost as we consider some of these things. So how do we connect the dots in all of it? And so what I want to do tonight is look at the Bible, and see if we can get a few cardinal points on things so that we can be ready and also that we can have the proper perspective on things, both the things which are and the things which are coming. So if you're taking notes tonight, I actually have four points for you. They are north, east, west, and south. 
four cardinal points for you in order to have perspective concerning where we are and where we're going. Now, one more thing before I, I get going to preface this Bible study. If you're new to Bible things and you're new to end times things, then you may hear some things tonight or you're hearing something going on that don't make a whole lot of sense to you. What I would say is don't tune out. Don't say this is over my head or I can't understand it. No, this is part of what we all learn and go and grow through as Christians as we understand what the Bible teaches. So hang on to all that you can and God will fill in the gaps and put the pieces together as you continue to grow and to seek him. So it's not for nothing tonight, but that's not to say get ready to be confused because I don't think you will. It's just uh, an encouragement more than anything else. So for your notes, the north point, if you would, in our compass, our cardinal points of things, concerns the timing of coming events. And most specifically in this, I'm speaking of the rapture, you know. Now, I'm going to, in a minute, explain what the rapture is. And I know we kind of are all familiar, we have a concept or an understanding, but I want to explain it briefly, very biblically, so you understand what it is. But I want to start this part by, by talking about the beliefs that almost all Bible scholars have in common. There are things, end times things, prophetic things, that pretty much no matter who you talk to, they, we would agree. We would say, yes, we understand and agree that the Bible teaches these things. First of all, the fact that there will be a rapture. The Bible says it, declares it, explains it, and so we believe it. And that's general, it's broad. Also, the fact that there will be a seven-year period that we call the tribulation, a, point, a period where God pours out his judgment on a Christ-rejecting world. And we agree that there will be a seven-year span. Called different things, but we agree nevertheless. We also all agree that there is a man coming that's called in the Bible the man of sin or the Antichrist, a one-world ruler who will bring a facade of peace, a false peace, but in all actuality he gets his power and authority from Satan himself and he is bringing the world into a snare, a trap, ultimately to destroy. And that uh, will bring and funnel towards Armageddon. Also, we agree that that seven-year period will be followed by the second coming of Christ. That it will be at the end of that time that Jesus will physically return to the earth during the battle of Armageddon, that one last war that's kind of the end-all for battles. And he will return at that point upon the earth. We agree upon that. Also, we agree that after that, there will be a 1,000-year period of time known as, biblically, the millennium, or a 1,000 years of peace and prosperity where Jesus rules and reigns over the earth. Now, there are some people that don't believe that. They think that this period of time now is a millennium, but we're not counting them because they're, they're not studying their Bible. It's, you know, very clear in the mainstream, uh, uh, you know, that that is following the second coming of Christ, that thousand years. And we also all agree, for the most part, that the saved, that is those that have put their faith in Jesus Christ, are not appointed to wrath. That is, that we are not, we do not have an appointment with God's judgment. He poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. And when we put our faith in Christ... We are saved from God's wrath. That's what being saved is all about in that context, the context of being taken out of that scene the, uh, of the wrath of God. So we all agree on that. Now, where there is difference, and what I want to address in this part of this Bible study, what we disagree on, some of us, is the placing of the rapture. 
That is, when does the rapture actually take place? And there are two dominant views, or ones that have the most clout or credibility or belief amongst Bible scholars. They are, first of all, a pre-tribulation rapture. That is, that God will come for his church prior to this coming period of judgment. Now, what is the rapture? Real quick, let me share with you two passages of Scripture. First of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In verse 51... The Apostle Paul is talking about the resurrection. And he says this at the end of the chapter as he's winding things down in this explanation of resurrections, the resurrection of the body. He says this, verse 51. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery that we shall not all sleep, that is, die, that's the the word there, but we shall all be changed or transformed. And then he says this, verse 52. He says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we, that is those of us that are not dead yet, we're alive on the earth at that time, we will be changed. So that's the first time this concept of the rapture comes up in the letters of Paul. And he says it's going to happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, We're going to be caught up and changed in a moment. The other passage is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In chapter 4, verse 15, again, Paul talking about end times things, he says this. He says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, that is, that we're alive at the time that Jesus returns, will by no means precede those who are asleep or those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. The word for that that was used by Paul in the Greek language is the word harpazo, and it means to be snatched away or to be taken by force. That's where we get the English word rapture. You could call it the caught up or the catching away if you want to. We use the word rapture because it's easier to say and it means the same thing. And so that's where the idea or the word comes from. That we, we will be caught up or snatched away together with them in the clouds. And notice that that's important that it's not on the earth. It's in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. So that's... The the teaching that Paul gives concerning what the rapture is. Now, the argument, or I'll call it the debate, because Christians don't argue, is when will it take place? One side says it will happen prior to the tribulation period, and we'll talk about it in a minute. And the other side says that it will be pre-wrath. And pre-wrath basically means that the church, you and I, that we will go through a portion of the tribulation period but not the portion that is technically considered God's wrath being poured out. And those that believe that or hold that position, and there's credible scholarship on that side of, uh, of things, they suppose to us that the first part of the tribulation is not God's wrath, but rather it's simply the consequences of what man has sown. It's reaping what we've sown. And so it's not us going through God's wrath, it's us going through with the rest of the world what the world has sown, and and we're not insulated as Christians from suffering. And that's true. 
And at the end of the day, whether it's pre-trib or pre-wrath, it really shouldn't matter much to us because we are called to embrace suffering. You know, so if, if that's the way God did it or does it, then it really doesn't make a difference. However, I think it does make a, a little bit of a difference. Otherwise, I wouldn't even bring it up to you uh, tonight. And so what I want to do right now is give to you the three biggest reasons why I stand in a pre-tribulation viewpoint. That is that we will be raptured prior to the tribulation. Now, I could spend the rest of tonight giving you points and reasons why I believe this. But the reason I chose these three is because they are opposing points to the pre-wrath view. That is, those that say, well, we're going to go through part of the tribulation and here's why we believe it. My answer to them would be these three reasons that are given to us in Scripture. And so you can jot these things down. We're going to move through them rather quickly and then move on to our next cardinal point. But the first reason, if you're taking notes, why I believe pre-trib rapture is this, is that, uh, is that the rapture is throughout the Bible considered to be a surprise, that there's a surprise element to the rapture. And the scripture is Matthew chapter 24, and I want you to look at verse 36. So Matthew 24, and beginning in verse 36, this is Jesus' teaching on the rapture. He's the ultimate authority because he's the one that we're going to be gathered to. And listen to what Jesus says in uh, Matthew 24, verse 36. He says this. He says, but of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is a faithful and wise servant who his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. But if that evil servant says in his heart, my master delays or is delaying his coming, and he begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and in an hour that he is not aware of and he will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He gives to us four illustrations in this passage that, 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 that help us to understand how this is going to go about. The first one is that he says that it will be as it was in the days of Noah. And then he illustrates that or qualifies it by saying that they were marrying and giving in marriage and they were buying and selling. You know, it says um, they were going through all of these things, eating and drinking until the day that, that Noah entered the ark. And the idea is, is that they were taken by surprise. It was life as usual, and they didn't see it coming. The second point there is that the people were all busily consumed. One was taken, and the other left. Two were in the field, two were grinding at the mill. 
Luke says two were in a bed, one taken and the other left behind, but that they were taken by surprise. They didn't see it coming. It was they were going about their daily business, and all of a sudden there was an interruption, but there was a surprise. The third illustration that Jesus gives is concerning a thief that comes in the night. Now, I don't know if you've ever had your house broken into while you were sleeping in the night, but I can imagine you didn't see it coming. And if you had, you would have been ready for it. And so it's, again, an element of surprise. And then finally, he gives the illustration of the mentality of many being we can eat, we can drink, we can carry on about our lives, we can beat our servants, we can give ourselves to carnal and licentious living, and it won't matter because Jesus isn't coming anytime soon. And he says they will be taken off guard, they will be surprised. So in all four of the illustrative examples that Jesus gives in this passage, it is an element of surprise. Now, he goes on, and we're going to get into the first uh, 13 verses of Matthew 25 in a little while, but he's going to tell a parable about 10 virgins or 10 young maidens that are waiting to be uh, married. And he's going to tell five are wise, five are foolish, five are saved, five are unsaved. But he says that all 10 of them were sleeping. That is that not one of them was ready when the bridegroom actually came. They were all asleep. Again, an illustration of the surprise element of his appearing. They weren't ready for it. Now, let me suggest to you this. Once the tribulation begins, at the very onset of it, whether you want to call it wrath or you want to call it consequences, you can choose how you want to look at those things. But let me tell you what's going to happen during those opening months and years of the tribulation time. There's going to be world war. There's going to be global worldwide economic collapse. There's going to be a rise of the Antichrist and a huge shift in the world power structure. Mountain ranges and islands are going to be removed and moved out of their place. Kings, great men, rich men, captains, warriors, slaves, and free will hide themselves and say, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb that's come upon the earth. One quarter of earth's population will die. One third of all vegetation will be burned. One third of the ocean will become blood. All fresh water will become tainted and undrinkable. Now let me ask you a question. If those things happen and the church has not been raptured yet, Will we be asleep, caught off guard, or taken by surprise? I don't think so. (laughs) I I know for a fact. Hey, think about this. What happened when 9-11 happened? I mean, that was one isolated incident in a major city. And all the churches in the United States of America were filled and packed out because people were, were waiting. They're saying, hey, this is the judgment of God. And it wasn't. So if all of these things start happening, not only will the believers not be caught off guard, but the unbelievers themselves, it clearly says, will be ready and aware, knowing that there's something going on. So for that reason, the surprise element, I don't believe that the rapture will happen after the beginning of the tribulation time. The second reason uh, is, is, is from a passage of Scripture. It's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and it's verses 3 through 8. And I don't have time to go through and pull those verses apart tonight, but I I believe that if you go through and read them, you'll understand what Paul is saying there. But in those verses, the Apostle Paul mentions that there is a restraining force upon the earth right now. He says that in verse 7. He says that that which restrains evil or wickedness is going to continue to restrain until it is taken out of the way. And then will that wicked one, the Antichrist, be revealed 
the son of perdition, the one whom the Lord will consume with, you know, the fire of his mouth. That, so, so he's saying that there's something that's restraining evil. Remember in our prophecy briefing a couple weeks ago, I talked about the herniated wall and how there's, there's things just every day it bulges a little bit more, but yet it just seems like there's something restraining, something keeping it back. Well, that's what Paul's saying here. He's saying there's something that's restraining and keeping evil from just overflowing the whole world right now. The question is, what is that restraint? Now, there are some throughout church history and even in the modern day that will say, well, that's the presence of the Holy Spirit in the world. And that's a good thought, but it's not true. And here's why. Because you cannot remove the Holy Spirit from anywhere. He is omnipresent. David said in Psalm 139, if I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go to hell, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. The Spirit of God is present everywhere. Furthermore, during the tribulation, the Holy Spirit will be present on earth because people will get saved. You can't get saved without the Holy Spirit. People will testify for the Lord. And Jesus specifically said that you don't have to worry about what you're going to say because it will be given to you by the Holy Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit's gone, how can the Holy Spirit give someone something to testify? It won't be the Holy Spirit that will be taken away. So what is the restrainer? I suggest to you that it is the presence of the church. You say you got scripture for that? Thank you for asking. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Listen to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you are, speaking of his people, the salt of the earth. What does salt do? Salt preserves. Salt gives seasoning. Salt brings out flavor. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? Now listen, the it there is not the salt. You don't salt salt. When's the last time you did that? You know, you, go, you put salt on your eggs and you're like, you know what, this salt isn't very salty. I need some salt to salt the salt so that my eggs taste a little bit better. No, no, you don't salt salt. You salt something. And that's the something that the it is speaking of there in the verse. He says, you're the salt of the earth. In other words, you're here salting the earth, preserving it. But if the salt loses its savor, wherewith shall it, the earth, be salted? He says, without the salt, it is, he goes on to say, good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under the foot of men. So if the salt is removed from the world, the preservation power is taken away and the earth is good for nothing but to be trodden underfoot. He goes on to illustrate again in verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now the power that's coming upon this earth is a power of darkness. The Bible says that. Jesus called it the night. He said, the night comes when no man can work. Paul said it this way. He said, the day is far spent and the night is at hand. So there is a darkness that's encroaching, that's growing upon this earth. But what opposes that darkness is the presence of light. And Jesus says, you are the light of the world. But once that light is removed, then darkness will have free course to do what it will in the world. And it will be ugly. So I submit to you that the restraining force is not the spirit who will be here even after. But what restrains evil today, what keeps the wall from spilling over and herniating finally, is the presence of the church on the earth. And at one point, God will call, there'll be the sound of the trumpet, and we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and thus 
the restrainer will be taken out and the tribulation will then begin. Then will that wicked one be revealed, Paul said in Second Thessalonians 2, verse 7. The third reason, final reason, as we will move on then, is this, is that the rapture is called the blessed hope. Titus chapter 2, verse 13 says, waiting for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, your hope and my hope is not that the Antichrist will be revealed and that the temple will be rebuilt and that the water will be turned to blood and we'll watch, you know, the islands be removed and mountain ranges moved and a quarter of the population die. And, you know, that's not our blessed hope. I don't know about you, but that doesn't fill me with a ton of hope. You know, I'm prepared for that. I could do that by him because it says we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. But our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. Jesus said it this way in Luke chapter 21, verses 34 through 36. Jesus said this. He said, but take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life and that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch therefore and pray always. Now here is a verse. Watch it. He goes, Pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And so he says that there's going to be an escape, that he's going to pull his people out prior to the coming judgment that's upon the earth. Again, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, Jesus is addressing the seven churches that represent all of church all of the churches, and he said to the church in Philadelphia, which was the faithful church, he said that because you have kept the word of my patience, I also will keep you from the hour of temptation or trial or tribulation, which is coming upon all the earth to try them that dwell upon the face of the earth. And so he says there will be those that will be taken out and kept from that time that's to come. And so for those reasons, I believe that God will remove and take his people out. And so what is our hope as the church? Our hope is that Jesus is going to come. You say, well, in our last study, you showed us the stars, you did some math, you pointed to the calendar, you said middle tribulation, you know, I won't go through and rehearse the whole thing again. Well, what about that? I mean, according to that, if that has any credibility and means anything, then wouldn't that put us in the tribulation now? Listen, if we were in the tribulation now, you would know it. (laughs) There would be no mistake about it. You say, well, what's your answer to that then? Is that pure coincidence and does it mean nothing? I don't know, but I do know this. I know that all of the events that take place in the middle of the tribulation don't happen on a single day. The middle tribulation can span several months. It could even span a year. It could be the entire fourth year of the tribulation. That's middle tribulation. During that time, the Antichrist establishes his kingdom, and that's when the mark of the beast thing happens, where the world economy is put into the chips that go into the skin and in the hands. That's not going to happen in a day. During that span, when the temple is rebuilt and the offering is made and the Antichrist makes his way in and there's a declaration and world governments all give their allegiance to him, it's not going to happen in a day. It will happen over a time, over a transition. What am I saying? I'm saying that we could still very well be in the final, final, final moments of that time before we hear that trumpet call. And just because that exact 1260 days, it doesn't mean that, okay, well, here we are. We're here for the next 20 years now. We should look up. I should be on him because he's the one who holds the clock in his hand, the keys of death and hell. 
and he's coming with clouds and we see his, his work. And so the blessed hope. And so we look at those things. That's our north point is this, that our blessed hope is the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ and we shouldn't stop looking for that. He's coming and he's coming for us. The next two points, the east and west on your compass, in terms of perspective in the days that we live in, are the two parables that follow what Jesus said at the end there of Matthew chapter 24. In chapter 25 of Matthew, and if you're not there, you could turn back there at this time, Jesus gives two parables. The parable of the ten virgins, followed by the parable of the talents. And I want to look at these two things. And so our eastern point in, in, in your compass is the message that's given to us in this parable of the ten virgins. What is that? Well, let's read it. Matthew 25, verse 1. Jesus says this. He says, Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourselves. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins, the five foolish ones, came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, and he said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, part of this hinges upon a tradition in Hebrew wedding culture. And that would work like this. When there would be an espousal or an engagement between a man and a woman, arrangements would be pre-made or pre-arranged between the parents of the bride and the groom. And after the contract was signed and the dowry changed hands, the bride would go to her house and the groom would go to the father's house where he would spend a period of time, usually about a year, building either an addition onto the house of the father or building another house on the land or in the neighborhood in that general vicinity. And no one would know the time of the wedding except for the father of the groom. Not even the groom would know when it was. But once the house was properly prepared and all arrangements were made and things were ready, the father of the groom would say to his son, now go and get your bride, that everything is ready and it's time for the wedding. And the bride would have to always be in a state of readiness because she wouldn't know the day or the hour when her bridegroom would come to take her back to the place and they would then start their lives together. She would never know when it was. And so he would go, he would go with an entourage of family and friends and festivities. There would be the blowing of trumpets and bells and all the rest. And they would go then and the bride would have to be ready no matter what hour he would come. When, it, when the cry would be made, she would have to prepare herself quickly and go out to meet the bridegroom when he was come. That was the custom. And so this parable plays off of that very custom. And it says it's likened unto ten virgins who were waiting for their husbands and five were wise, five were foolish. Now, let's break it down a little bit. Who are the virgins in the parable? Spiritually, biblically, 
Paul uses the word virgin to describe a Christian or a professing Christian waiting for the return of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2, the Apostle Paul says this to the Corinthians. He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. The church is called the bride of Christ. That's what we are. He's our bridegroom. And we've been betrothed to him. He has paid for us through his blood on the cross. The contract and the arrangements have been made. The Bible says that he's given us the down payment or the the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit that has sealed us until the day when he comes for us to redeem us. So the virgins in this parable are those that are a part of the church that are awaiting his return. What we soon discover is that only five of these young women are actually saved. Five think they're saved or want to be saved, but they're not actually saved. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. He says five of them were wise and five of them were fools. How do we interpret that biblically? Jesus said, the wise are those that hear his words and do them. And he said that fools were those that heard his words, but didn't do them. They built their house upon the sand, and when the storm came, it came and swept away their house. And so those that are wise do what Jesus says, God says, and those who are fools are not. So there's five wise, five foolish. Then he defines that wisdom and folly this way. He says that they all had lamps, all ten of them. Now the lamp, again, biblically, it speaks of the individual life. Jesus said, you are the light of the world or the lamp of the world. God has given you the ability to shine as a light. We see it illustrated on the day of Pentecost when cloven tongues of fire came and rested upon each of them. They were the lamps. Paul said that we have this treasure, the treasure of God's glory, in these earthen clay jars or these clay lamps. He says that the excellence of the light of the glory may not be of us but of God. In other words, we're not the light but we are the lamp that bears the light. He is the light that shines through us. You understand? And so all 10 of these were lamps. Five of them were lit. Five of them were wise. Five of them had oil, but five of them did not. Now, what's the oil? The oil has a twofold application in the parable. First of all, oil in the Bible always speaks of the Holy Spirit. In the Old Testament, it was the anointing oil that was placed upon Aaron and his sons, and then later the kings, or those that would do service for the Lord. It was the anointing oil that was a symbol of the Spirit of God coming upon their life. We just read of David and Samuel, of how Samuel went and he anointed David with oil, and the Spirit of God came upon him from that day forward. And so the oil in the Bible, both Old and New Testament, speaks of the Spirit of God. The other application of this oil in context with the parable is preparedness or being ready for his return. If five of them had oil and were ready and five of them did not have oil, well, just practically, if you have a lamp but you don't have oil, then you're not ready to go out in the night and and shine. And so it speaks of preparedness. And that, for you and I in this context, it speaks of being prepared for the coming of the Lord. Are we expectant? Are we desiring his coming? Does the thought or the prospect of Jesus coming for you, does it get you excited? Or does it get you nervous? Or does it get you scared? What does that do in your life? That's a great way to measure and gauge if you are, in fact, ready for Jesus to return. He goes on to then say, that 
while the bridegroom delayed, while he tarried, it says that they all slumbered and slept. What's that? It means that it took longer than they initially thought. They thought by now the bridegroom would have returned, but he hadn't. And so they kind of let their guard down a little bit. And all of them had kind of gone to sleep and weren't ready uh, exactly when he came. Though five were ready, they weren't immediately ready because uh, they weren't expecting when he would come. We're told that he came at midnight. That would be the least expected time for a bridegroom to come at midnight. I mean, you would wait all day, especially as that year got towards the end and you knew that the bridegroom would be coming soon, you know but you would never expect that he would come at midnight. Then we saw in the parable the exchange that took place between the wise and the foolish. The, the foolish that had no oil looked to the wise and they said, hey, give us some of your oil because our lamps, hey, we don't have oil for them. And so the um, wise looked at them and said, no, we're not giving you any of our oil. Are you crazy? You know, this is what we've been waiting for our whole life and we're not going to. But what does it speak of? Because, I mean, we're Christians, right? If someone asks us for the coat, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to give it to them, right? If, I mean, if this was a real thing and we had oil and someone said, hey, give me some oil, we'd give them the oil. So what's the deal here in the parable and, and what this is all about? It's a revelation of who is ready and who is not. That's what this is, this is all about at this time. And notice what the five wise said to the five foolish. They said, go and buy some oil yourselves from those that sell lest there not be enough for for us and for you. And here's the idea behind that, the five that had no oil, is that these are the people that are in our churches. They're sitting in our midst. They come to Bible study. They may have been brought up in the church. They've been going to church for years. But they think that because they go to church or because they prayed a prayer, that automatically that just lumps them in, but they've never really opened up their heart to Jesus Christ. Perhaps at one point he knocked and perhaps they even answered the door and they said, well, what is it, Lord? What do you want? And Jesus responds and he says, I want to come inside your heart. And they said, well, what are you going to do once you get inside here? And the Lord responds as he does to all of us. And he said, I'm going to come into your house and I'm going to get rid of every last filthy thing that's inside there. And I'm going to bring in all my own furniture and all my own fixtures, and I'm going to remodel and change and transform. I'm going to knock down walls. I'm going to change every part of your life, and I'm going to make this place my home. And it was at that point that those people that initially opened the door made a decision mentally, quietly, and said, no, not so. You, I want you to save me, but I don't want you to come into my house because I don't want you to remove these things that are in my house. And so they sit in our churches, they may even raise their hands in our services, but they've never let Jesus Christ fully in. Thus, they haven't been saved, born again, sealed, and and redeemed. In the book of Revelation, again, those seven letters to seven churches that I mentioned to you earlier, there's one church among those seven that's vastly different than all the others. It's the church in Laodicea. It's the last letter that Jesus writes at the end of chapter 3. He even addresses that church differently. The others, he said, to the church in Sardis or the church in Ephesus or the church in Philadelphia. But to that church, he says, to the church of the Laodiceans. In other words, it's not even my church. I don't even know where it came from. It's your church. It's the church of the Laodiceans. You thought of this. This isn't mine. And at the end of the the letter, Jesus is pictured as standing outside of that church. He wasn't even in it. He wasn't even a part of it. And his indictment towards them was this. He says, because you say, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. In other words, they thought they were okay. They thought they were saved. They thought they were secure. They thought everything was good. 
But Jesus said to them this, but you don't even know that you are poor and miserable and, and wretched and blind and naked. All terms associated with not being saved. Poor, miserable, wretched, blind, naked. If you're saved, you're rich in Christ. You're clothed with Jesus Christ. You're, uh, you know, all of those, those various things that he says, you're not wretched, you're righteous because he makes you righteous. You're not naked, you're not uh, miserable. You have the joy of the Lord as your strength. So that indictment proves that they weren't even saved. They weren't even apart. But what does Jesus say? He says, I stand at the door and I knock. And here's what he says to them. I counsel you, therefore, buy from me gold that's been refined in the fire that the shame of your nakedness does not appear. So what does he say to them? The same thing that these five wise virgins say to the five foolish. Go buy oil for yourselves. Now, you can't buy salvation. You come to Jesus And he supplies it, but you find that he also paid for it. You buy it freely. That's what Jesus says later on in Revelation. He says, come, you that have no money, come and buy. Buy with nothing. And that's what we bring to Jesus. We bring our nothing. And we buy salvation. But we do it by letting him into our life to be the Lord of our life. And when we do that, the Bible says, he stands at the door and knocks. He comes inside. And that Holy Spirit that comes and lives inside of us is the oil, the guarantee that when he calls, there will be light in us that will be recognized, that will be taken. So that's what we have in this parable. We see that those that were ready were the ones that went in, the saved, the righteous, and those that were left out, those were not saved, they do not go in. Now here's the reason and the message behind this parable. Here's what it is. This is what Jesus is saying to us by giving this message. He's saying, first of all, be ready. Be ready. And second of all, live like he could come at any moment. Live like Jesus Christ could come right now. Be ready and aware because he's coming at an hour that you don't expect. And so that's the Eastern point for this thing is to live like Jesus could come back at any minute. That's the word of the Lord for you tonight. Live like he could come back at any minute. Now that's actually quite easy for me to do. I can do that no problem. And here's why, because I want to go to heaven. (laughs) <laughs> I, I am so looking forward to, to not being in here in, in this world anymore. And, and so for me to do that is actually easy, but that life comes with an inherent danger. And here's what that is, is that expectation, and this is law, <laughs> expectation always affects behavior. In other words, what we're expecting affects the way we behave. If I'm expecting a hard day tomorrow, I make sure I get a good night's sleep tonight. My behavior affects what I'm expecting. If I'm expecting a lot of people to show up for a Bible study, then I better prepare for it and be ready for when they come because I, I better, I have my behavior has to line up. If there's layoffs coming at the job, then your behavior is affected. You work hard. You bring your game, you know. And if, if there's tough times, you buckle down. What we expect always affects our behavior. See, but when you're expecting the rapture, God, Jesus to come and our life here on earth is over, that also can affect our behavior. We can put our feet up. We can go, oh, you know what? The Lord's coming. I'm ready for him to come. He's coming at any time. I mean, hey, he's coming. And we can just back off a little bit. You see, I don't really have to be as diligent. I don't have to have my guard up. I don't have to, you know, um, do, do the things that I'm supposed to do because he, he's coming and, uh, and so I'm, I'm not really too worried about it, you know. Um, 
I heard the story uh, uh, not too long ago of, of a brother here in the church whose uh, son is a contractor. And the father was doing some work with the son. I think they were working on a relative's house. And there was a, a, a heat radiator. I think around here you say radiator, you know. I don't know. Anyway, the, the, you know, the, the, the heat thing. And, and, and there was pipes, and it had to come out. And it was Friday afternoon, and the, 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 the father, who didn't normally work with the son, he, he said, you know what, I think I'm going to tackle this radiator uh, removal thing. And the son said, are you sure you want to do that? There's some unknowns in that. You know, we don't know exactly how that's all going to go. And he said, I think I will. And the son looked at the dad, and he said, Dad, we have a, a rule, a standard in this business, and that's this. We don't get into things that have unknown variables after lunch on Friday. <laughs> and, and, and we can all relate to that, right? When we think that we're out of here, we can say, well, I don't know if I really want to get into something because, hey, Jesus is going to come. I confess to you, a few weeks ago, when we were having that study and there was so much excitement about the things that were going on. My wife said to me, and yes, I'm going to make it about her. She said, you know what? I'm not going to grocery shop till after Saturday. <laughs> and, <laughs> I said, I'm not going to pay the bills till after Saturday. You know, it goes both ways, you know. Because we have that tendency, and I don't know if you feel that too when those times come upon us. And so there's a danger in that mentality of being ready. But listen, Jesus doesn't stop right there. He goes on, and he gives to us another parable. It's our next cardinal point. It's the parable of the talents. It begins in verse 14 of chapter 25. And Jesus says this. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. And he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five. And likewise he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. And after a long time the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received the five talents came and brought the other five talents, saying, Lord, you delivered five talents to me. Look, I've gained five more besides. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. And his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. And I was afraid and went and took and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what's yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. Therefore take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, but he, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So what is this all about? Well, Jesus, of course, is the man. The talents that he mentions there at the beginning of the parable would be in his day a measurement or a unit of money. He's giving to each one something to invest. Now for you and me, in terms of looking at this parabolically, Jesus doesn't give us money. He gives us talents. Not gold, but he gives us skills. He gives us things. It's kingdom currency, the things that we can use to invest to further his kingdom. It says that they traded with them. 
Now, why would you trade? If you were going to trade gold, your intent would be to invest with the intent to multiply. Nobody invests in order to lose or just to keep things safe. You invest in order to gain. And so what is the kingdom currency that Jesus gives to us? What are the talents that he gives to each one of us, his servants? Well, your spiritual gifts, and everyone has them. Your personality, your sphere of influence, your individual trust of Bible knowledge, that which he's given to you, what you know. Your resources, your time and your personal circumstances, where you live and where you work and all that. Your strengths, you know, the things that God has given you that are your strengths and also your weaknesses. The cultural conditions of the world that you live in, that's part of the trust, the talents that God's given you. And I think the one talent that everyone has, even the one who buries it, and ultimately we find out he's not saved, is that God's given to every one of us a testimony, a story of what God's done in our life. And that's why the guy who buried his talent was condemned because he never let that, te- that testimony happen. He buried it. It never came forth. But we all have a testimony. Even the blind man in John chapter 9, he said, I don't know anything about Jesus. All I know is that I was blind and now I see. And his testimony was invested and it bore fruit. And so every one of us has talents. He says that everyone's given according to their ability. We're all different and we'll be judged and rewarded accordingly. He says that they traded with them and they gained. That is, that everyone who used what God gave them to further the kingdom also multiplied the very talents that they had. Did you know that's possible? That if you use the things that God's given you, He'll multiply it and make it more. He'll give you other gifts that you didn't have or that you don't have now. He'll multiply what you've got. We also see that there will be a reckoning, that when every servant will stand before Jesus and give an account, and there will be a reward that's received according to the progress and production of what you produce or do as you actively seek to build God's kingdom. What's the point of the parable and what Jesus is getting at? Here's what it is. Be busy. Be busy about his business. The very nature of producing or sowing and reaping, as is what's given to us in this parable, is that it requires planning, preparation, strategy, diligence, reaping and reinvesting, involvement in the process and understanding how it all works, expansion and exploration of new avenues, setting up safeguards and protections so that what you do and what you have isn't raided upon, seized or robbed. There's a whole process that's involved in this idea, this concept of of investing what God's given to us in the kingdom. And what it requires is this mindset, is that Jesus might not come back for another hundred years. That's a very real possibility. And we have to live with that mentality. But there's a problem with that mentality. And that's this is that expectation affects behavior. And if we're not expecting Jesus to come back for 100 years, then that's also going to manifest itself in the way that we live. See, people know that I'm going away on vacation, and so they've been asking me now for several days, are you excited about going on your vacation? Are you excited to go away, to get out of here, to be snatched away by an airplane and fly somewhere else? And my response to them is, what vacation? If you knew how much I had to get done between now and when I get on that airplane... I can't even begin to think about getting on an airplane until that day that it happens. See, I cannot bring myself to to, to expect that day to come until, because why? Because I'm so busy, because I've got so much to do. And see, that's the danger that comes with having that mentality, is that you quickly lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming again. You say, Jesus is coming. You say, yeah, 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 I know that, I know that, I know that. I'm busy serving him right now. I I can't worry about that. 
It reminds me, many of you heard the story about that, you know, we used to have an apartment with a laundry room. And, you know, Georgia was in there and, and the lot washer was right in front of the door and I was standing in the doorway and she was in there with a big basket of laundry and she turned around to walk out and I wouldn't let her by. And she's like, come on, get, get out of the way. And I said, no, I just want to, I just want to, I want to kiss you. And she said, would you, would you please, I'm, I'm serving you. I'm doing your laundry. I'm serving you. And, and I said, I don't want you to serve me. I want you to kiss me. You know, and, I, I, and she's like, no, I'm, I'm busy. I'm serving you. I can't do this right now. Listen, I didn't marry you to do laundry for me. Okay, I, I, didn't, I didn't marry you only to do laundry. <laughs> no. <laughs> but see, here's what happens is that why did Jesus save us? He didn't save us so we could just serve him. We'd be a bunch of mindless oompa loompas running to and fro and busy about things and taking care of this. Yes, we better do it. We've got to have that mentality. But he saved us ultimately that he might be with us, that we might know him, that we would experience him, that we would ultimately be where he is forever, seeing his face and his glory, experiencing for the ages to come the riches of his kindness and what he's done for us discovering for ages who he is in deeper and deeper ways, experiencing his love in ways that we could never understand or comprehend. When we become so busy with what we're doing in our lives now, as good as those things are, we can become distracted to a point where we're like, Jesus, coming. What? Is, what? <laughs> I don't, I'm not even ready for that. So, so here's what's happening here. Remember East and West? You, you can't get any more opposite than East and West, right? We're called to do both of these things at the same time. That is, live like Jesus could come back right now with that expectation and desire. And at the same time, live like he might not come back for a hundred years. And that is almost impossible to do both of those things. So how, as we wrap up this rather lengthy Bible study, do we do that? That's our south point in your cardinal points. And south is because you look down. So how do we walk through this? How do we navigate this process of living like he could come back today and being ready for that, and also living like he might come back in 100 years. How do we do it? Number one, it's a matter of heart and home. A heart and home. Luke chapter 12, verse 34, uh, says it like this. Jesus said it. He said, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return for the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. See, the key to living like he could come back at any moment is to have your heart at home in heaven. That is, my, my heart is with him. That regardless of where I am or what I'm doing, Jesus is very first in my life. Colossians, the Apostle Paul he says it like this, Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. He says, set your mind on things above and not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And if your heart and your home are in heaven, then it's almost impossible not to be ready and wanting for him to come. Because there's no greater desire or reward for the Christian than to be with the one who spilled his blood to redeem us. So the first is a matter of heart and home. The second, dealing with being busy, is a matter of our call and our commitment. What's your calling? See, your calling is the same as mine. We're called to make disciples. Oftentimes I'll ask people, I'll say, hey, do you know what the vision of the church is? And they say, if you don't know, pastor, then we got big problems. 
But let me look at the bulletin and see if I can figure it out. What is the vision for the church? And many people, I could ask you, and you'd say, well, I'm not exactly sure. Well, listen, did you know that the vision for the church is not something you'll find printed in the bulletin or in the bylaws of any local church? The vision for the church was established by Jesus Christ himself. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus said these, the last things he said before he ascended to heaven. He said, all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth is given to me. Go you, therefore, not them, not your neighbor, not the pastor, you. Go you, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Your calling and my calling is one and the same. We are called to make disciples by three avenues, evangelism, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe whatsoever I've commanded you, and intimacy. Lo, I am with you always, being with him, even to the end of the age. And that's our common call. Every one of us is called to do it. And no matter what your gift or your sphere or what God has given you to do, no matter what it is, that is the fruit of the church. That's what Jesus wants. He wants us to make disciples. If you look at a tree, there are only two parts of a tree that mean anything. The roots and the fruit. Everything else is immaterial. It's all about the root, which is what supplies, and the fruit, that which the tree produces. Now, that tree might produce shade or beauty. That might be the fruit of a tree that you might have. But nevertheless, if the tree is dead, it doesn't serve any purpose at all whatsoever. Now, there's many different parts of the tree that have nothing to do with the fruit seemingly at all. You have the sapwood. What does the sapwood do? It's on the outer layer of the trunk. It brings nutrients to the branches so that the fruit can grow. You have the heartwood of the church. The heartwood gives the strength. It holds the structure of the tree together so that it doesn't fall over. You have the leaves. The leaves call for extra nutrients to come so that there's an ample supply to bear fruit on the branches of the trees. You have the bark that serves the purpose of protecting the tree from insects and invaders from coming in and polluting, corrupting, and destroying the tree. But yet every part of that tree all exists so that the fruit can abound. The fruit of the church is to make disciples. And there's some of us that bring the nutrients and supply, the sapwood that brings the nutrients up. Some of us are leaves. Are, we, we, we encourage and bring forth and cultivate and make it so that there's a lot more nutrients to go around for the fruit to bear off it. Some of us are the strength and the support behind the scenes. Some of us are protectors, keeping invasions out. But see, we all serve the same purpose. It's to go make disciples. So what is your calling? What part do you play in producing what he calls his product? That is, disciples in the church. That's what we're called to do, every one of us. And so it's a matter of discerning, discovering what he's made us to be, and then giving ourselves to do it. And then finally, number three, in terms of how we do this, is that it requires that we walk in the Spirit. You've got to walk in the Spirit. It's not that we just receive marching orders and then walk a straight line, but we stay and live in humble dependence upon him, so that he can nudge us when we're getting out of balance. Hey, you're getting too consumed in the things of this world. Don't forget I'm coming soon. Or we're, we're so fixed on heaven that we're no earthly good. And he says, hey, get busy. I'm not here yet. Finish well. Run hard all the way to the finish line. But it's so essential that we stay in tune with the head and that we allow him to make those adjustments. Because, hey, did you know you can't look east and west at the same time? It's impossible. So when you're looking this way, sometimes the Lord will say, look this way. When you're looking this way, he'll say, look this way. You're walking this way, he'll nudge you this way or that way. 
And it's so essential that we respond to those things. What are the cardinal points for you and I as we consider the days that we're living in? Number one, understand he's coming and he's going to keep his word. Number two, be ready and be expecting that at any moment he could come. Number three, be busy. Find what it is that he's given you to do and do it with all your heart that when he comes, he'll find you working. And number four, understand that he is with you, that he will never leave you or forsake you even to the end of the age. And as you walk in humble dependence upon him, he will see that you stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Father, we thank you tonight for this word. And we pray, Father, that you take the things that we're seeing in our world and you'd help us to see our place in it. That as we have opportunity, Lord, to examine the cardinal points of our own walk in faith, Lord, would you give us wisdom that we might walk exactly and in perfect tune with what you want for us and what you have for us. Father, we need to be filled with your spirit afresh. We need a fresh revelation of your wisdom, Lord, that we might make wise choices. We need your understanding and your favor in this world. We need your boldness, Lord, that we might speak boldly to those who come to us and ask us a reason for the hope that we have. And we need your presence, Lord. And so I pray, Father, that whatever it is that we need to hear from you tonight, whether it's that we're out of balance and we need that adjustment, or whether, Lord, we're in some way just walking in a way that's unworthy, Lord, we ask that tonight you would just put us back in that place where we're supposed to be. And Lord, if there are any here, that have yet to truly open their heart to you and let you inside. Lord, we would pray that you would just do that work. You would seal salvation. Let the seed germinate, Lord. That you would be the oil in the heart. And so we pray, Lord, help us to be a living, burning church, serving your purposes in these days. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand together.